Margaret Trudeau is a Canadian icon, celebrated both for her role in the public eye and as a respected mental health advocate. From becoming a prime minister's wife at a very young age, to the loss of both her son and her former husband, to living with bipolar disorder, Margaret tirelessly shares her personal stories to remind others of the importance of nurturing the body, mind, and spirit. Margaret is the author of four books, including her best-selling titled Changing My Mind, which charts her life's ups and downs, and her latest title, The Time of Your Life, which offers women an inspirational and practical approach to creating a healthy, happy, secure, and satisfying future. Margaret sits on the Executive Advisory Board of the University of British Columbia's Mental Health Institute as a community advocate. And she's the former honorary president of WaterAid, a charitable Canadian non-governmental organization that is dedicated to helping poor communities in developing countries build sustainable water supplies and, sanita and sanitation services. She's also, as the president was saying, the proud mother of one of my alum in the Faculty of Education, uh, the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. Please join me in welcoming Margaret Trudeau to the stage. Hello. Uh, I'm honored to be here talking to you tonight. Uh, I've been a mental health advocate for the last 13 years. Uh, 2006, uh, I sort of came out of the closet, so to speak, and publicly admitted that I've suffered uh, my life, my adult life, all my adult life, uh, from bipolar disorder. Uh, it actually wasn't. Uh, such a big announcement in my family or to my friends or to anyone who knew me because I had known for many, many years that I was bipolar. I, I just hadn't come to terms with it. I hadn't been able to find the courage uh, to battle it. I hadn't found uh, the courage to accept that what mental illness is, is wrong thinking. You're not, when you're mentally ill, you're not accessing that pure good reason in your brain. Uh, and I'll explain what happens to my brain and anyone who has bipolar a little later. But to take uh, the denial that I had, it lasted sort of 25 years of thinking that nobody could really understand me. And if I was crazy, it was because of that life I led, uh, being, being the prime minister's wife, uh, which was terribly isolating. Thank you. Was terribly isolating on the one hand, and very glamorous and exciting on the other hand. There were days and weeks of, of just loneliness, missing my family on the West Coast, missing my friends, missing my life. Well, Pierre changed our nation and worked 14 hours a day. Uh, I, I became a, a bird in a gilded cage almost. Uh, I lost but I lost my power to sing, and it resulted in a lot of depression, a lot of unhappiness in my mind, even though I was living a really wonderful life. I was living a dream. 
but what happens with bipolar, as, as most mental illness, uh, they rear, show their head late in your late teens. Uh, just when a person, such as myself, is beginning to be actualized as an, as an adult, is beginning to have their own character, their own identity. And uh, teenage angst and teenage hormones, well, we all know what that's about. It's sometimes hard to distinguish whether the person is suffering from uh, a mental illness or, or just being a teenager, just being, being someone idealistic and full of excitement one moment and weeping the next over a slight or a problem. Uh, that seems to be teenage behavior. One of the things I learned about myself and my bipolar condition is that I'm, I'm destined to be a perpetual teenager with my bipolar. It's just where I'm stuck. <laughs> so so I, I, I didn't know, we didn't know in my teenage years uh, I was a little firecracker. I was a high achiever. I, I loved my life. I loved my childhood over on the North Shore. Uh, I had a, had a good life, and I got to Simon Fraser, and I lived out in an apartment in the basement uh, of uh, somebody's house, and it was the first time I'd been away from the structure of my family. And when you have a mental illness, one of the things that's really important, and one of the things that actually can hide your mental illness for a long time, is having a bossy and firm mother and grandmother who makes sure that you always have a good night's Sleep, you always eat all your veg, and you get outside and play. And uh, those were the roles of my childhood. And, and when I left uh, my, my family home to live alone in a basement suite in Burnaby, uh, I, I, I didn't adopt the best habits, as university students don't. I studied too late, I, I partied too hard, I, I, did, I didn't, I ate a lot of craft dinner instead of healthy food, as we all do. And that was the beginning of my uh, trip or whatever predicament of bipolar was was when I was at university. I, I was intensely passionate. We had, at that time, oh, it was exciting to be at Simon Fraser in the 60s. We got Jerry Rubin to come, and he came out to UBC here, uh, and 60 people showed up in the hall. He was part of the, people don't know who Jerry Rubin was, he was a part of the Gang of Five, a really a huge social activist, part of the revolution in the state and he came up to speak to us and he came to UBC and there, 60 people came to the thing and he said, oh well, it's a beautiful day out. He said, let's, uh, let's go outside for a walk. Uh, we don't have to stay in here, let's go outside. Oh, by the way, is there any place we're not allowed to be on this campus? And someone said, well, the faculty club. And so off they went to the faculty club <laughs> and they booted out, there was a Japanese visitor, uh, the royal family, Japanese family, uh, visiting in the upstairs suite at the faculty club and well he was kicked out and they kind of raided the liquor and did that and and then then, then the next day he came to Simon Fraser well Arthur Erickson our great architect from the west coast had made this academic palace up on the hill in Burnaby where everybody could converge very quickly into the quadrangle so he had 3,000 rap students sitting on the stairs listening to him preach revolution and there was a lot of excitement about being part of the anti-Vietnam War, being a hippie. Uh, I remember one day my, my boyfriend came into the uh, cafeteria at Simon Fraser and he said to me, uh, 
Margaret, strawberry fields forever. <laughs> what? Well, he said the night before, an older friend from UBC had come over to their place, their place and uh, he'd brought the new Beatles album, hence Strawberry Fields, and he'd also brought a bag of weed. <laughs> And oh, I was shocked because we decided we would try weed, but just up at his dad's cottage, 50 miles north of Prince George, uh, I, I took to weed like a duck to water. I just <laughs> loved it. Uh, and if you remember, if any of you are my age, which is 70, um, the kind of liquor that we were offered and that we drank a lot at that time was called baby duck. It was pink. And a lot of us got wrapped around the toilet at the end of the night trying to find a cold place because we were throwing up. So weed was great and get sick. Uh, it's also part of the mental illness, which I didn't realize until much later, of course, uh, that substance abuse is one of the, the beginnings of understanding that someone is dealing uh, with a mind that is not answering their basic needs. Uh, my brain, I thought my brain was just a fine brain and it was serving me very well. It did at university. It did... I, I got good marks, uh, but for some reason I would fall into these uh, these low, low places where I would be really wretched about something that was happening in the world. The first time it happened to me was when I saw a picture of that little girl running up the street in Vietnam, naked, Denise Chong was her name, and on fire from napalm. And I said to my mom, what is this about? And she explained it was a, a napalm from the Americans bombing Vietnam. Vietnam, what? Uh, I only knew the Americans from Mozzie and Harriet and Fathers Knows Best and all those good, good stories of America. So I, I, my activism was real and I felt, I felt man's inhumanity to man, but, but sometimes my reactions were way out of kilter, out of proportion with, with how I, how I should have been. Uh, well, I finished university rather quickly and I headed off to uh, Morocco uh, for my gap year. My sisters had all gone on train trips, 21 cities in 21 days or something like that. My mom had their itinerary next to the telephone table. And I just said to her, bye, I'm off. And I, I went to find myself. And Morocco was, a, it was eventful uh, and exciting, but not always in a good way. I, I hung out with a lot of interesting people, drug dealers and cult leaders and Leonard Cohen and all kinds of good fun. And I, I thought I was getting enlightened. I thought I was discovering what freedom was, what real love was, what real choice was, when in fact, and I even saw an angel. And uh, in fact, what was happening was I was having my first experience of mania which uh, is part of the bipolar experience. I'm still not going to explain exactly what it is yet, uh, but because I want to get to the next part, uh, which is after... Uh, for some reason, I met Pierre in, in, in uh, 1968. Uh, I, my father had taken three, uh, we're five daughters, had taken three of us and my mom to a new concept in resorts in Tahiti called Club Med. And, and the first night I was there, I fell in love, well, that was me, I fell in love with the cutest Frenchman. His name was Yves and he was a water ski instructor, and, but he was also a social revolutionary from the University of Paris. My 
cup of tea. Um, and I met uh, Pierre at the same time. And Pierre was uh, so worldly and sophisticated. And he talked to me and he would grill me about Socrates and Plato and and drugs and sex and rock and roll. Uh, he was trying to make, he was reading on the beach uh, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And I'm going, what kind of a beach book is that? Oh, well, Margaret, I'm trying to decide whether to throw my hat into the ring and become the Prime Minister of Canada. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, he, he was the same age as my mom, and my dad had been a politician, so Pierre had a lot in common with them. Not me, but at the end of the holiday, <laughs> at the end of the holiday, he turned to his buddies who he was traveling with, and he said, uh, if ever I marry, She's the one pointing to me. <laughs> I got picked. No idea why. <laughs> and uh, we, we, I went off to Morocco to find myself. Uh, when I came home from Morocco, I, I fell into uh, my first real. It wasn't my deepest depression, but it was a depression. I came home and uh, I had become Zen macrobiotic, which meant I only ate root vegetables and brown rice. And so when Mum had the celebratory dinner of Margaret's home, a roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, I'm, oh, Mother, you're not still eating flesh, are you? <laughs> So I got kicked up to my grandma's for not being good girl. And, uh, and Pierre found me there and asked me out on a date. And we, we dated for a little while, a few years. And then we secretly married. And uh, it was very, very, I was very happy. Pierre was wonderful. He, he was intelligent and sophisticated and elegant and, and funny. And, and I loved him very much. And, and we had our beautiful first baby. Uh, almost nine months to the day after we got married. <laughs> well, a few weeks later. And, and uh, Justin was just a, a joy, a pleasure. I was answered to my dreams. I always wanted to be a mom. And, uh, and then when Sasha was born, Justin was a Christmas baby. And, and then Sasha uh, went into labor on, on Christmas Eve. Uh, two years after Justin was born, Pierre was upstairs making a, a, a motorcycle for him with 37 different parts, a yellow plastic one. I don't think Pierre had ever had a screwdriver in his hand before. So he was struggling with that, and he would come down to check on me. My mom and dad were there as well. And I said, Pierre, I, I'm going into labor. And he said, Margaret, you're not having another baby on Christmas Day. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> So seven in the morning on Christmas morning, Sash was born, and um, I, after he was born, everything changed in my world. I, I'd had a lot of joy, a lot of humor in my life. I, I, I loved life. I loved everything about it. My baby Justin, my little toddler now. And then suddenly it was like a switch had been uh, turned off in my brain, and I fell into my first clinical depression. Uh, we didn't know at that time about postpartum depression. Uh, we didn't talk about it. I'd never heard that expression. I didn't know what it was. Uh, but even though I didn't know what it was, it was very real. Uh, it, I just wanted to lie in my bed with the sheep pulled over my head and let the world go away. I, I didn't know how to make decisions. I couldn't decide on what to wear or what to, or what to do with anything on menus for the dinners. I couldn't decide. I'd just weep. I felt 
I felt exhausted. I, I didn't know what was wrong. Well, Pierre and I were clearly worried. I'd lost my functions. I, I wasn't dealing with life. I wasn't able to contribute anymore. I was weeping all the time. What was wrong with me? We went to a psychiatrist. That's 1974. The only people that I knew who went to a psychiatrist in 1974 was Woody Allen. <laughs> And Pierre and I went. Oh my goodness, the psychiatrist was so excited to have Pierre Trudeau, the prime minister, in his office. So for the first few minutes, he just quickly and concisely told him how he changed the whole billing practice of the doctors in the country. And then he, then he turned to me and he said, I understand you're having a rough time. And, mm -hmm. and he almost patted me on the head, not quite, but he did say to me, it's just baby blues. It's a, a fluctuation of your hormones, big words. Uh, you'll, Pierre, part, pay Margaret more attention. Okay. Um, I got better uh, in the spring. I felt a lot better. Uh, maybe it was just new growth, spring coming. There's something about the change of seasons. And uh, so my depression was over, and Pierre asked me to join him on the election campaign in 1974. And I said, whoopee, yeah, sure, yay. And so I was feeling pretty good, actually. And so we went off on this campaign. I was nursing my baby, and uh, I had to give him up because the plane was filled with smoke because we still let smoking on the planes, and I couldn't, my little baby, six-month-old baby, couldn't breathe that air. So I left him behind. So my hormones did fluctuate quite a bit. Uh, I didn't get a lot of sleep. I didn't eat. I, I just kept getting thinner and thinner, and everyone was complimenting me on how I lost all my baby weight so quickly, haven't I just? Uh, what I didn't know was that uh, with the bipolar, and nobody used those words to me, I still did not know what bipolar or even what it was called then, which is manic depression was, and I didn't know that that first clinical postpartum depression that I'd had uh, because it was not treated, uh, there would be consequences for the rest of my life. The neuropathway to depression had been opened, uh, and it, I would relapse again without treatment, without treatment right away to nip it in the bud to close that neuropathway to depression, to get it to be not part of your thinking process, uh, part of the health, your healthy brain. Uh, if it's closed right away, you're not going to relapse again and again. I, I didn't have it closed, and I didn't know the other thing was that as deeply as I'd fallen into depression, I was going to rise into something called mania, which was going to be really high and really fun, I found out. Wow. And so I, I just kept getting higher and higher. I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't taking care of myself because we were on a six-week election campaign. Uh, I, I took over a lot of the public speaking because I found Pierre really boring and dull. And, <laughs> and I thought he's just lecturing everybody. People don't want to hear your lectures, Pierre. And so I was exciting. And Pierre had a huge victory at the end of it. Uh, not, not as big as Justin's uh, victory, but it was big. He got his majority government. And when we went up to Harrington Lake, which is the Prime Minister's country house outside of Ottawa, uh, after the election, I realized that nobody, particularly Pierre, nobody had even said thank you to me or there was no acknowledgement that I'd had made any contribution. And I was feeling restless, really restless. So I asked Pierre if it would be possible if I could go to Montreal for the day uh, for some shopping. Uh, he, he gave me a, he didn't give me any cash because he was kind of uh, frugal.
<laughs> but he gave, he gave me an Eaton's charge card that he'd bought in the mail. And he told me to go and buy myself something pretty and have a good day. And so off I went. And I got to Montreal. And hmm, it wasn't Montreal where I needed to be. I needed to go to Paris. So I had this charge card. So I went to Eaton's and got some luggage and some clothes and lost my driver. And uh, I had a, a pass on Air Canada uh, because I'm the prime minister's wife. And I didn't need a passport. They had a little delegation. The pilot let them know in France I was coming. So a small delegation was there. Bienvenue à France, Madame Trudeau. Merci. And I got into Paris. And it was so beautiful. I love Paris. Hmm. Paris is not where I need to be either. I need to go and walk around Crete. I'd never been to Greece before, and I certainly knew that Crete was the cradle of civilization in an early, early thought, but uh, I had this mission I was on. I was going to Crete, and I was going to walk around it. I had to go, and I knew the Greeks wouldn't welcome me like the French did, so I had to go to the Canadian consul about four days after I'd got to Paris and get a passport so that I can continue my journey on to Crete. And that's how Pierre Trudeau found out where I was. Uh, four days later, uh, we didn't have cell phones and I hadn't bothered to try and call him. Uh, uh, and I did go to Crete and I did walk around Crete. Took beautiful photographs. Uh, but you know what, I didn't get better. Uh, what I was doing, I was, I was searching for what I'd lost uh, to the mania, which was my peace of mind, was, was my contentment with life, my ability to enjoy life, to be grateful, to be part of, to be included, to contribute. Uh, the mania had put me into a state of a racing mind, high excitement, intense, intense feelings, passion, uh, and no seeming concern for a reason. Uh, my values, my judgments, my about everything seemed to just go out the window because I'm, I'm living in the now and I'm so charged and I'm so enlightened and I'm so high. And if you can understand for a bipolar, untreated person, when they've been living in that depression, and then they come out and the family's so glad to see them back and then they start living in this hypomania which is great, it lasts for a little while where, where you really are back and you're fun and you're, you're doing well and accomplishing everything but it just accelerates up into mania. So now I'm going to tell you actually what happens to your brain and it took me a long time to be told what was actually happening. It wasn't until I really started my recovery at 50 that I was really told what was actually happening in my brain. So uh, depression, they found out about 50 years ago uh, that there was a hormone called serotonin, we all know about serotonin, uh, that was missing in the brains of people who had had chronic uh, uh, suicide attempts, who, who resisted all form of treatments, even though the treatment were pretty bad then. They still did electric shock, even that didn't work. Uh, they found that there was no serotonin in their brain. Now, serotonin is a hormone that comes from our digestive tract. Uh, it's replenished every night while we're asleep. 
What another reason why sleep is number one, the most important thing you can do for yourself is a good night's sleep, because the serotonin is replaced. Uh, the food that all the superfoods have serotonin in them, walnuts, all of those broccoli, all of those foods have serotonin in them. But the the food that has the highest amount of serotonin is raw oysters, and we always thought they were an aphrodisiac. <laughs> but the serotonin can go so quickly into your brain, into your bloodstream, into your brain, and what serotonin is, it's the feel-good hormone. And when it gets to the brain, it's a jelly-like substance. It's a conductor, and it coats all, all through your brain, and it's a conductor. And so I'll tell it, I'll tell it to you this way. You're looking at a beautiful sunset, and a nanosecond through your eyes, the, the image goes to a neuron in your brain. And the, there's a trillion other neurons in your brain. It has to go through the conductor of the serotonin and find another neuron and have a click until you go, oh, what a lovely sunset. So can you imagine if there is no conductor, if there is no serotonin in the brain, then there's no click, there's no feeling, even from a beautiful sunset. And so when you're depressed and, you're and, and people are trying to, in their good-natured way, trying to cheer you up, saying, come on out for a walk, it's the most beautiful day, it's just glistening outside, it doesn't register with you because there's no clicks in your brain, there's no completion of the, the thoughts, there's no ability to process what you are seeing and doing as a meaningful, positive experience because the clicks aren't happening. And so it's a depletion of the serotonin that puts you into this deep de depression. Uh, thank goodness in 1985, one of the big revolutions in psychiatry happened when antidepressants came on the market and they artificially stimulate the serotonin production and so you get the serotonin back in your brain and you start dealing properly with your life. Uh, not to say that you, it isn't a magic pill, you don't suddenly get well, but at least you start dealing with your life in a proper way. You start feeling your, your feelings start uh, coming again. Uh, and then the opposite, the yin-yang to this depletion of serotonin that puts you in this, this cloud of depression, of meaninglessness, uh, is, is the dopamine that invades your brain when you're manic. Now dopamine, it's the best hormone in the whole body without question, should be bottled, probably is, knowing the Californians, I don't know, but it, it's in charge of all our genius. Dopamine is, is in charge of our artistic side, our creative side, our spirituality, our faith, our hope, our love. It's our fear. Uh, the dopamine is just really, and in most brains, most healthy brains, you have an ample amount of dopamine. If you're an artist, you may have more. If you're bipolar your brain, you're in a manic state, your brain is being flooded by dopamine. So much dopamine that it's in the layer of, uh, of the brain that's on top of where reason lives. And so your, your brain is racing from one thought to the next so quickly that if only you'd have had a pen, you could have written, written such a poem. And if only you'd had a paintbrush, you, what a painting. And the religious thoughts you have, the epiphanies you have, the insights you have, when in fact what is happening is the brain is very unhealthy and it is functioning and it is dysfunctioning and it is, is giving you all of this energy, this false energy 
and it's sort of all dressed up and no place to go sort of feeling. It's, uh, it's, and yet we get addicted and addicted to it. Uh, we bipolar, untreated people, and I was there. I know how it felt. I, I encouraged the mania. I wanted the mania. I needed the mania because otherwise it was all so sad and meaningless in my life. And uh, but the mania can take you too far. And uh, I. I went on for many years after I left Pierre, which was inevitable because of our age difference and that he was such a mature, responsible, reasonable man, and I wasn't. <laughs> uh, he, and I needed my children to be raised in a, in a very homey Canadian kind of way, not in a grand house with servants. And, and police and everything. So I got my wish and I had my house three blocks away where I raised the boys every other week and, and I remarried and, and had a very happy 10 years uh, with two more children. And I, I did therapy and I took the medication that I was told by the doctors to take and I, I took care of myself. But you know what, it's those times when your life is going really well. Like all my needs were met, I adored my husband, he was just so funny and we had a wonderful life and welcoming and more babies was wonderful and the teenage Trudeau boys were so much fun on the weekends and life was grand. And you get to this stage where you think, <laughs> they were wrong about me being bipolar. I'm just not. I, it was just that life. It was. I, it's okay if I, you know, this medication. It does affect my libido, and and it does mask my joy a bit. So you know, it won't matter if I just go off of it. So many people with mental illness go off their meds in times like these when life is good, and they don't realize that one of the reasons that life is so good is because they're on their meds. And I got taken off my meds by a country doctor in a town of 900 people who'd learned about Prozac. And he'd put it almost in the water. All his female patients in this small town were on Prozac. And I went to see him complaining about, it was so sad, I had early onset arthritis, osteoarthritis. And it was so sad, I mean, mother of small children. And my wrists, my knees, my back, my neck, my feet were all just aching from time to a time, paralyzing me, debilitating me with the pain. And the doctor told me that what I was suffering from was called fibromyalgia, uh, that there was actually no inflammation in any part of my body. There was no arthritis. What it was was my brain was signaling to my uh, peripheries, my joints. The, the brain knows very well where they are, but the brain doesn't really have a picture where your broken heart is, where your unfulfilled self lives, where your angry self and your hurt self or moldo. The brain doesn't know where that is and you're, you're suffering depression and you've seen the ads, depression hurts and it comes out into your body and it makes you go and get help. And I did, I went and got help because I thought I had arthritis. In fact, we'd had a puppy die and things were, were not going well for me at that time and I hurt and so he put me on Prozac. And then he called me up one day and said, oh, he'd been doing a little research and 
maybe I shouldn't be on Prozac, maybe that's not for my type of bipolar with the high mania factor, so just go to the drugstore and get a new bottle of something else and stop taking the Prozac. Well, he didn't know at that time, that was quite a while ago, that these drugs have a half-life, and you don't just go off one and start another. So he flipped me into this crazy mania. And I had to spend two and a half months out at St. Paul's here, away from my family, away from everyone, uh, in order to, while Justin was studying here at UBC, in order to get out of the mania, because it's very hard to get out of mania when you're, once you're there, hard to get out of. And I hated every second of being in the psych ward. I, I resisted. I was put in, in a straitjacket. I hated it. I hated it. I didn't need to be here. I needed to be there with my children, with my family. And, and I, I left there so angry that I had been robbed of my time and that I was now officially crazy. I had been in a psych ward and with no hope and no recovery imminent. And it was, it was after I got out of that, that experience, um, about six months after that, that I lost my boy Michelle to a, he, 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 he drowned in 1998 in avalanche, pushed him into a glacial lake. And his death um, just rocked my world, it rocked all of our world. You can't, of course, the death of a child is just a, the worst, but uh, with my bipolar undiagnosed, not being treated very well, my resistance to help, uh, I just fell so deep and so hard uh, into, I, I got rid of my husband and those na other children who were in my way and I, I isolated myself and got myself very alone and, and I got a big bag of very good BC bud and, and I got good scars really fine scotch to drink after five. And I, I stopped eating and drinking and exercising. I just lived in this pain of being a, a mom who'd lost her child. And I didn't want any help and I didn't get any help and I got sicker and sicker and sicker until something happened to me that I didn't know could happen. I'd always trusted my brain. I thought I was a pretty smart cookie. And here, uh, I let myself go so bad into my mental illness. Uh, I was what they call rapid cycling between depression and mania and making no sense and then then I, I moved across a line that I didn't know about. We used to call it insanity. I, I became insane, and now we call it psychosis. I became, I, I lost all sense of reason. I could no longer connect any dots. It was after Pierre had died, and I'd spend a month with he and the children helping him pass, and I'd watched him uh, refuse food and, and uh, water in the last week of his life to hasten his death before our assisted dying uh, humane practice came into effect. Uh, and my brain took it on and I went home and I stopped eating and drinking. And I didn't wasn't conscious because I was psychotic. I didn't know what I was doing. So I, I, I had an intervention uh, by a nosy friend who wouldn't give up on me. She kept rapping on the door and trying to bring me food and get me out to get my hair done, telling me what a hag I looked like. And uh, I just, just barricaded myself in and uh, she got worried so she called one of my son Sash and he got to 
to Ottawa and her actions, her tenacity, her nosiness saved my life because I was at death's door. I had lost 40 pounds. I no longer had any fat even on my kidneys. I, I looked like a 10-year-old boy. I no longer had any curves. Uh, I, I was all gray-haired and made no sense. And uh, when I got into the hospital, because I guess I was at rock bottom, and you've heard people saying that about how that's when you really get a chance to get better, is when you hit rock bottom because there's no place lower to go. You, you reach the bottom, you can only go up. Um, I, I got the luck of the draw. I got a wonderful doctor uh, for the first time. I'd had a, a thing against authority and psychiatrists and, and who do they think they are. And so I, I, I got one given to me at, this, at the hospital uh, who, who got me and he did not treat me like I uh, was retarded and couldn't understand what was going on. In fact, he appreciated that I had intelligence and he slowly but surely as he got me out of my mania and out of my psychosis and into healthy eating, healthy sleeping, healthy living, giving up my, my weed, giving up everything uh, into a program of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what changed my mind. I, I guess everybody should do it. Do you know that over in Salt Spring, I mean, it's such a hippy-dippy island anyway, isn't it just? They have in the church basement or the library basement or somebody's basement a cognitive behavior group cognitive behavioral therapy sessions on Saturday morning. Now, that is such good news because cognitive behavioral therapy, what it does, and that's why my title of my book is Changing My Mind, is what it does is it takes you, the analogy I have is that I chose, it was my choice, I chose to walk on the dark and shady and cold side of the street with my head down and with my pity and my wincing with pain and poor Poor me, poor me. And I learned through positive thinking, through changing the way through cognitive behavioral therapy, changing the way I think. Remember I told you at the very beginning, beginning all mental illness is wrong thinking. And if you think about it that way, you have to correct your thinking. And you can change the way your brain can function with the, with the chemicals and the pharmaceuticals, but they don't, that doesn't change your mind. That just puts you on square one where normal brain function like everybody else. How do you get out of your mind? How do you get out of your fear? How do you get out of, out of this awful dark place that you've put yourself in where you're isolated and alone and you're not contributing to anything and you really don't want to live anymore. Uh, well, you learn how to, to, to say no to those thoughts and yes to positive ones. So I got to move over and now I make the choice always to walk on the sunny side of the street with my head up in case there's somebody walking by that I can have eye contact with and be part of and see the sky, see the rain, see the light. Uh -huh. You know, it's a choice to be happy. It's a choice that we make every day from when we may wake up. But those of us who get caught in mental illness, and there's more and more of us who are getting, maybe it's not more and more of us getting caught in it, but maybe it's more and more of us understanding what is the root cause of our behavior. Why do we drink too much? Why do we smoke dope? Why do we not get on with our lives? Why do we make dumb decisions and bad mistakes late at night? 
right? And dumb, dumb. And why? Well, because we're not, our brain isn't functioning perfectly. We, our brain health somehow hasn't been put as a priority. So I had to, for five years, I had to be a very, very good girl from 50 to 55, late bloomer, 25 years in denial. And uh, once I got into the habit of not only thinking positively, but honestly, really thinking sleep, number one. And sometimes for a busy mind, the only way you're going to find sleep, and I can't use drugs for sleep, so the only way you're going to get to sleep is if you've exercised in the day and your muscles are so tired, you're just going to go to sleep. And you have to make choices about the food that you eat. And we know that processed food isn't good for us. I'm lucky, one of the lucky ones. My mom didn't use processed food. I've never used processed food. I think once I had used hamburger helper and the family just loved it. <laughs> I felt so guilty. But I, it's, it's not just that. We can eat all the fresh food and, and sleep well and eat well and play well. Uh, but we also have to get therapy, have to turn it over to someone, have the courage to be able to say, I'm just not myself. I, I don't feel right. I don't know what's wrong with me. If I knew what's wrong with me, I could fix it, but I don't know. And you know what? We can't fix ourselves. We just can't. And you know another other sad truth that I've learned? No matter how good your family is, how educated, how fine, how loving, how caring they are, they can't fix you either. You have to turn it over to professionals who understand the brain, who understand our impulses, our compulsions, and who know how, how they can retrain us the way we think, the way we act, with a good values that we're not listening to mom and dad telling us, and we're not listening to our friends telling us, but we may well listen to a professional. I know that it's been my experience, and I think the experience of everybody who has had a real problem that they're trying to cope with on their own. It's just lo they're losing sleep over. They, they're wincing with pain inside when they think about it. They're ruminating. They can't stop. And when they finally turn it over to someone else, it's just a weight gone off your shoulder. But that's what's so human about us and about what I'm talking about, the human condition. This is about what we need. We need to help each other. We need to be together. We need to fight our fears with active love, by being kind, by being real, by being honest to people, and by accepting that we're not perfect and that we never were intended to be perfect, that our lives are always going to be a struggle. Pierre used to say, Margaret, I don't know if you're prepared for the vicissitudes of daily living. No, who is? <laughs> who is? But if we're healthy and if we're well, and I want to see a whole generation of people, of kids who I am seeing, uh, that we're raising, that we have raised, my generation is raised, and now we're seeing our children's children that are being raised, uh, to not have this stigma and this, as my little seven-year-old Arianne says, not to be judgy, Grandma. No, let's not be judgy. Let's be supportive and helpful and aware. And I was saying that you can't fix somebody with a mental illness, but there is something you can do. You can you do use your healthy, rational mind, your correct thinking, your positive ability to research, the positive ability to find the truth, and you can start planting the seed 
succeeds in the person who you love. Uh, not, you know, you have to be a bit careful because we're no dummies and we know what you're trying to say to us. But if the seeds are there, if we know out of our ignorance we can't hold on to this idea that this is just the way I am and there's no changing me. There's no way you can make me any different than I am because this is what, this is what you see and this is what you get, whatever. Yes, you can change. Yes, you can. And it's by being part of the we generation. It's part of being together. It's about reaching out, about being meaning, having meaningful lives where once you get yourself ready and brain healthy, mentally healthy, optimistic and free, then you can start being part of the big change in the world. I, I have to say, and I'm here in Vancouver, I am part of the WE movement, and I see I've got Lauren here, <laughs> Lauren Siegel, who's our chair out here. I've been part of the WE movement now. We, we speak to high school students between the ages of 13 and 18 in, in hockey arenas, uh, trying to make them understand for one day of their lives, well, they have to work to get into WE, uh, how much better it is to be a giver than it is to be a taker, how much better, stronger we we are when we're together helping each other, how, do, how wrong it is to be divisive and judgy and push away people who are different from each other. We must embrace and certainly with people with mental illness. All my life when I was a little girl I, I heard the messages, I heard the jokes about the mentally ill and they made me less free about accepting my thing. If we don't joke about it, if we just treat it like any other illness, that there is treatment and there is recovery and there is hope, but you've got to be one of those people who can find inner courage and want to be better yourself, want to get better, because you can go to, I went for a long, long time to therapy and took the drugs and did all of that, and I was not committed, so I didn't get any better. I, I didn't move ahead, I just stayed. My family enabled me, the therapy enabled me to be sick. It wasn't until I, I lost everything that I had to make, become a new person. I had nothing to. I had everything to work for. Uh, I had four children who are still alive. I now have eight. No, I don't. I have nine grandchildren. My last one was born a week ago. Uh, I didn't have grandchildren when I went through the worst time of my life. When I was in the psych ward, when I had no hope, I, I had a depleted family. We'd lost Pierre. We'd lost Michelle. Uh, we had no children, no grandchildren, there was no hope. And, and it's in those dark moments that we lose faith. <coughs> Excuse me, and we can take our own lives. Suicide is the, the highest rate of suicide of all the mental disorders. It's bipolar. And that's why I do what I do, because I, I wouldn't have lived like you. We wouldn't have lived. We wouldn't have had this future. I wouldn't be called Grandma Yummy by my grandchildren and have all this hope in front of me and see these young, strong, strong uh, kids that we're raising who really do have values, who do have strength to change the world. So all to say, I have three more minutes, and I want just to tell you one joke because I think it's good to leave you laughing. 
And besides, I'm, I've got a whole gig with Just for Laughs. Are you kidding me? Uh, they picked up my, my new play, and I'm going to be doing it everywhere. And it's not really a comedy. It's kind of a tragedy. But anyway, here's my joke. So if you get close to me, you'll see that I have not done anything about my wrinkles. Nothing at all. And here is why. There's a 54-year-old woman. She has a massive heart attack. She's lying on the operating table. She has a near-death experience. She goes up into the light. She says, God, am I dead? A booming voice says, no, you have 43 years, eight months, and two days left in your life. Well, she's right back on the operating table and back into her hospital room, convalescing. A great, the operation was a great success. And she looks down at her body and she says, 43 more years while I'm here. So she has the plastic surgeon come and he tucks her tummy and raises her breasts and stretches out her face. And she even goes down to the beauty parlor in the lobby and gets her hair blonded. She leaves the hospital feeling like a million dollars. But then she's killed by an ambulance right there. She goes up to heaven and she said, God, I thought you said I had 43 more years. Oh, I didn't recognize you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. A pleasure being here. Thank you. And thank you to the Department of Education. Thank you to Professor Frank. Thank you, Professor Ono.